Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Sony Music Presents Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett, and this week our guest is Troy Casadaly. We first had Troy on the show a few weeks ago, and we had a fascinating conversation regarding Troy's early days and his career to date. Now I'm pleased to say that Troy's back with us to talk about his brand new album, The World Today. For this chat, I joined Troy in his home studio, which is where he demoed the songs for the album initially in lockdown before heading off to Sydney to record the record with producer Matt Fell. I really love talking to Troy. Um, we not only spoke to him about writing and recording the album, but we spoke about his life and his journey as a First Nations man. And I should let you know um, ahead of time, we do talk about some heavy subjects in here, including alcohol abuse and suicide. These topics can trigger strong emotions, distress, trauma, and other mental health issues. So please consider whether you wish to listen further and also be sure you have a plan in place if you feel you're likely to ever find yourself in strife. That might be something like keeping Beyond Blue's phone number in your telephone or having a friend that you know you can count on to call. Towards the end of the chat, we also talk about a distant relation of Troy's, a Ewan man called Thomas Golden Brown. It was Thomas's mother who saw Cook's ship in the distance all those years ago. Anyway, I'm really glad you're here to join us today, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Troy Cassadaly as much as I did. Here he is, Troy Cassadaly. Troy, great to see you again. Sean, great to see you. Wonderful to get the opportunity to come back to your bat cave. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit of a bat cave. I'm surprised the bat hasn't flown out of here. <laughs> but we, we had a chat um, a little while ago talking about your career to date and your whole bat catalogue's been released and all the streaming services. But when we were chatting, you were kind of beavering away, beginning to work on a record. I think you might have uh, had most of the songs demoed. And... This room we're in your studio, I assume this is where you do most of your writing? Yeah, look, I, I decided instead of trying to cope with COVID and worry about the financial difficulty that everyone's going through, I set up a drum kit next to my desk, which is right here next to us, and um, I hadn't played drums and bass since I was probably in teenage bands at school, because everyone had to play whatever you could put sit down to, you had to actually play to lump along yeah. to prove that you're a musician, you know. So I decided I'd get back on the drums and bass and, and build some tracks and start to work out what I had to say for another record. Instead of letting COVID get on my back, I, I just got it out of my head with music. And um, and that was the best start to a record, I reckon, you could possibly imagine. Oh, that's interesting. So the new album's called The World Today. Yep. Very, you know, prescient title, given the, the way the world's changing so much. How does a record for you start? I mean, you mentioned going back to bass and drums. Do you find a particular song unlocks an album or is it a case of you have to get maybe 10 or 12 songs together, then you think, I do have an album here? Well, I, I, I did a thing many, many years ago where I uh, used what they call a wagon wheel effect with, um, with, with songwriting. And if there's one song you've written which you think is the hub of the record, uh, you put it in the middle of the wagon wheel and each spoke that goes off should have a song that's strong enough to relate back to that hub. Wow. I don't know why I did that years ago. It, it was a, a great way to see whether you were in the right ballpark to actually have a record ready. But wow. it all starts with that one song in you, the middle. I've never heard that before. Is this something that you come up with yourself or yeah, something you heard so. about? Yeah, I, I, wow. I kept uh, – uh, Roxanne, my manager, knows it well. She just always used to say, oh, have you done your little – your wagon wheel yet to make sure you know whether you've got the songs to go into the studio? And I, I, I did it once in Nashville. I think I was sitting up late one night and I thought, well, how do I get everything to relate back to that one song? Yeah. 
I was um, I was in Nashville and I had to write a song for a session the next day with Nash Chambers for demos. Yes. And I sat up and watched some TV in America and it was quite crazy and I, I, I wrote The World Today, the first version of it, and I thought, well, that's going to be one of the, the hub songs of this project. And when I lost my father, uh, I had about three songs written and one of them was that one in the middle with World Today. And then I thought, to me, I looked in the mirror after I lost my dad and felt completely lost without him being able to call, and then I thought, well, what have I got to say? Uh, if, if I'm going to make a new record, you know, wh- where are we going to go with this? What have, what have I got to say, at, you know, in 2020 when I started? So when did your dad pass away? He passed away in 2019. Yes. And I was actually sitting down here with Ian Moss in the studio writing with him the day he, he passed away and um, got a missed call from my stepmom in Sydney and then it all just downhill from there. But And I said to Ian, look, I, I can't write tomorrow. I've just lost my dad. Oh, and, God. And he totally got it. It was, it was quite surreal, you know, the whole thing. But it was, it was a little bit of a pivotal moment in my creativity too, going, well, okay, I'm, I'm in this deep despair here for my father. Uh, what do I do with that despair? Do I, do I go ahead and, and use that and try and make a record off what I'm feeling right now? I thought, well, that's the only way out of this. Because I was so depressed, yeah, and um, and and so were all my family, yeah, you know, um, and unfortunately he took his own life. He was very very sick, and it took me quite a few months after that to come to terms with what he'd done, and how his decision making led to that, and so uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a dark dark time. Uh, I, I didn't know where the songs would take me. There's some dark songs on the record too, yeah, and there's some dark songs I suppose that had to come out, uh, and and that was part and parcel of what I'd been through with Dad. So the whole writing of this record was a very kind of cathartic healing process for you? Oh, big time. And I had some first cousins who'd been in- incarcerated. Uh, their stories were very int- interesting and important to me. Uh, I've never had my liberty taken away as, as a person and have to be locked up in a jail, uh, been in green clothes yeah. for best part of a couple of years, being told what to do, when to eat. Mm. So uh, a lot of that came into the record as well and I've never really uh, written about that before in my life but we've had family members that have been incarcerated that I thought I, I should be talking about too. It's a darker theme than what people expect from me but I think it was a good way out. It's interesting because when I played the record I asked to get sent the lyrics first and so I decided to read the lyrics before I listened to the record which I've never done before with anybody's album. Really? In, I think in the history of listening to music. <laughs> it must have been very boring. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I, I, I thought to myself, um, I wonder how much of Troy's autobiography is in this set list here. And you've explained about your cousins and so forth. Obviously, a lot of it's in there. And uh, I guess for all good music to resonate with people, there's got to be some wellspring of truth in it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was, there was an instrumental there for a friend of mine that had passed away from suicide too. It was just... It was all these things that were crossing over that went into what was going to be what I'd sit down and, and play. And um, he left a couple of kids behind and that was, that was a, a ripple effect through all of us in the country music industry when we lost him. He was one of my favourite guitar playing friends. So, it, you know, there are things on there that like uh, the instrumental, I, I haven't done an instrumental like that before on mm. a record preceding a song and that was for him because we always talked guitars and the song that went straight after that was after I'd written uh, read Jimmy Barnes first book again I had this leftover song I sent him two tunes and that was one of them one of them was shutting down our town mm. and the other one was uh, be a man how he had to be basically left as a young kid his mum and dad going their own separate ways yeah. there was drinking 
And it, it, it inspired me so much to think that how did he actually survive to adulthood after that traumatic childhood? So um, a lot of people will understand that that's not my mother and father I'm talking about. It's yeah. Jim's. And Jimmy loved the song, just that he had 25 or 30 songs already shortlisted. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to waste this song. I think it's still a story, especially for Indigenous youth and young men that have to be deserted as kids and turn into men way too early. And then they're fending for themselves uh, at a very early age. And turning into a man and being responsible uh, is, is a tough thing for kids. And I experienced a little bit of it on my own, being a single parent kid. Uh, I got a chance to have to have my own. I was a latchkey kid as well. Mm. You know, get, get off the bus, go home, cook your own dinner. Uh, it's, it's part and parcel of growing up. Not complaining about it. Yeah. I think it makes you stronger. Yeah. But I was very surprised at Jim and how he got through. So, yeah, every song on here, like I say, had to point towards the middle for me to make sure it got a Guernsey. When you're going through that kind of uh, grief and, uh, I guess, depression, was it swimming through molasses initially or did the songs come quite easily? Oh, look, I had a block for about two weeks and the only thing that broke the block was – this is prior to COVID. Yeah. Uh, I got in touch with Paul Kelly and I got in touch with Dom Walker. Mm. And they're two people that I can count on uh, to give me something. Yes. And to get me out of the woods, you know. So I said to Paul, uh, have you got any time at all that you can write? I'll get on a plane. I'll come to Melbourne. And he said, yeah, look, um, I've got a Monday afternoon from 11 o'clock. We've got the whole day into the night. Stay for tea, whatever you want to do. And so that was one. I emailed Don. Don was in, I think, Singapore. Yeah. And then Don, he emailed me back. He said, I can co-write by internet. He said, send me what you got. So that started and that got me out of the two weeks of, of just complete craziness. And then I got Ian Moss over again uh, when he was coming through town and that, that broke the drought. It, yeah. it all started to flow. It's interesting with your co-writers. I mean, you've written a lot of the music yourself on the record and lyrics, and then you've written, as you said, with Paul Kelly, Don Walker, Kevin Bennett, Ian Moss. It sounds like there's no typical way for you to co-write. Uh, what's it like now in the age of, uh, as you mentioned, Don Walker and the internet? What's that kind of exchange like? Is that you sending him lyrics or is he sending you a, a piano piece? How does that work? Well, with Don, uh, I don't think anything I've written with him has ever really been melodically driven by Don. It's all been lyrical. Because um, he always feels like things uh, arrive cemented with lyrics, but not immovable. You know, you, he can still bend them around. He said, but your melodies you normally send through are ones I can really get my head into. So Don will sit and he'll just chew over it for a couple of days and then you'll get this out of the blue email at like 11 o'clock at night with these incredible little twists and turns as of what you've already sent him. Paul's different. I like to sit face to face with Paul because he tends to spit stuff out uh, that you just have to be ready to catch. <laughs> and already I bring a melody. He, he always classes me as the pregnant woman and he's the midwife. <laughs> <laughs> he said that, that you arrive pregnant and he said, I deliver the baby with you, yes. you know. And and that's, that's typical Paul. But I think that's a great – there's no process. Um, it all is, is very, very different. With Shane Howard, uh, I sat face-to-face -face with Shane on that same trip when I caught up with Paul. I spent a day and a night with Shane – and it was nice to be able to to sit with someone that I've loved for many, many years as a brother uh, to co-write something with him. Now, I think there was a Goanna post around here last time I was yeah, here. Yeah, there is. there, yeah. It's, it was only stuck over there because um, I wanted to put it somewhere it wasn't going to get damaged while I was moving things around. But, yeah, I, I've sent Shane many photos of that that particular poster. And, um, you know, to co-write with him was, was amazing. But 
it also strengthened your resolve as a, a solo rider as well to then come back with the confidence of if I'm going to start something I really like parole for instance yes it's something that I was sitting right next to my cousin at my men's camp and he was talking about how they uh you know, have to test your urine to make sure you're not on the dope or anything, yeah. or or drinking, and you have, it's very strict parole conditions that they're let off on, and and um, those conversations just turned into a song. It was like a conversation song, just like that. And he said it was so hard to ignore the pull of his friends that are criminals as well, because they're your friends, mm-hmm. but they also drag you into a world that you've just tried to get out of. When you're in a situation like that as a songwriter, you're sitting down with your cousin. The light bulb obviously goes off. Are you kind of then wanting to race away and grab a guitar or a bit of paper and a tape recorder? How does that work for you? No, no. The, the conversation just sits in my mind for a while, and I think I learned this from Don Walker, was that it's okay not to have to have a tape recorder or a pad. Just have something that's interesting in your mind that you can repeat until it sticks. Mm. And Parole was one of those stories. Um, it, was, it was lovely to be able to just talk candidly with my cousin like that because he trusts me. And it was his story, you know. I wanted to make sure I got it right. So all the way home from my men's camp, I had this this continual thing going over in my head of the conversation. And then it was a case of getting on a guitar and sitting down and trying to work out where to go with with a conversation and a story that will turn into a riff. So when I when I found this thing, it was like it was going to be quite a heavy thing. That's the first thing I wrote. And then I sent it to Don Walker. I said, Don, has this got any merit? You know, he said, keep writing it yourself. Right. He said, just just take it from me. He said, keep writing it for yourself. He said, when it's finished, can you send it to me? Because he said, I think it could be a great chisel song. <laughs> <laughs> and so it got me like I was supposed to be like, I was like the student going, right, I've got a project. Yeah. And so um, and it was interesting to see where Don would say, is this the direction of your new record? And I said, yeah. I, I said, look, it's a heavier, darker direction. I said, but after writing the song for Chisel years ago, HQ454 yeah. Monroe, after writing for Jimmy, um, it was this little rock thing inside my guitar playing that needed to come out as well, and I wanted to express a bit of that on this record. It's an interesting thing because, as I said, I started reading the lyrics first, then I put the record on, and when I put it on initially, it kind of sounds like Neil Young and Crazy Horse kicking off. Well, and that's funny. When I, I, I wrote a song with Paul when we were just about to go home, I said, look, we'd had tea, and he said, have you got anything else? And I went, oh, well, I've got these dumb recordings in my phone. I said, there was a thing I was doing with an electric guitar and harmonica, and when I played it for him, he went, oh, God, that sounds like Neil Young. Yeah. And I went... <laughs> Does it? Because <laughs> I don't know much Neil Young. Yeah. And, and he said, play me what you've got. And it was about five minutes of just warbling, you know, and just making up stuff on the harmonica. And he goes, oh, I really like that bit. Yeah. And I really like that bit. He said, play it again. And as I played it from the phone, I just held it up to him and played from the speaker. He started freestyling lyrics over the top of it. And I went, well, okay. I said, should I be writing this down? He goes, yeah, just write these things down. So I sort of got the pad and because we're very analog, you know, we're yeah. writing everything down by hand. And I kept writing down and, and I said, what about blah, blah, blah? And so I'm, I'm contributing lyrics. And he said, yeah. He said, put that down. So we both started writing. And by the it, it was like 20 minutes and the song was done. Wow. And, I, and then it was the first demo I did, Sean, on the drums and the bass. And I sent it straight to Paul. 
And Paul said, that sounds like Neil Young and Crazy Horse. He said, you're, you're whatever your thing is, playing yeah. the drum, loose drums, bad bass and shitty acoustic and electric or whatever. It was really quite a rough demo. Yeah. But I was so proud that it made a noise. Yes. And I thought, hey, hang on. I could record all my demos like this. So that was the first thing. And it's funny you made that comparison because I think someone else said that as well. I think it was Kevin Bennett that said it sounded like a Neil Young song. So the looseness of all that. And so that was an experience for me to get that feedback about something I just recorded in, in the in the first instance of, right, this is my key out of here. It's interesting because um, people, when they say concept record, they think, oh, is it Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon? But when I was listening to the record and reading, it does feel like it's a concept record. There's a, a thread running through it. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And it wasn't a conscious decision either for that, but I think what it came down to was Matt Fell as a producer. I had about maybe 22 songs to throw at him, Yeah, but I fed him each demo just sparingly. I didn't want to just cram his head and everything I sent him came down to 14, 15 really strong songs and the other mm. five were just stragglers mm. and I knew they wouldn't make it but I knew the strongest stuff was going to be the undiluted things that I'd send him first. So I had a list in my phone and I'd just send him, okay, this is what I've sent Matt so far. I'd send him this one and then it might have been the parole board song that I wrote with uh, with Greg Storer, Doing Time. So there is a bit of a theme, yeah. but Matt was smart enough as a producer to just pick it up and go, right, these are the songs I reckon have really got something going on. He said, they're the ones I'd love to cut on the day. So by omitting those stragglers, you gave your record a lot more form and shape. And that storyline was allowed to carry through in a stronger fashion. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. it just it, it was it was more of a strong drink compared to some wussy one you'd pour. You know, there was a lot yeah. more yeah. bourbon in the bottom of the glass mm -hmm. for what I was going to give him mm. than some watered down thing. That there was a, a a really cool rockabilly thing that I wanted on there, but its lyric was too light. Yeah, for what I intended for the record. And if it was going to be about my world today and my conversations that are right there with my first cousins or losing my dad or having to become a man early in your life because I've, I've watched it happen around me, but I've also read it through Jimmy's book, mm. it gave me such an inspiration to keep it strong as much as I could. And, and that was the, the beautiful part of using a producer. I haven't used a producer for the last four or five records. So it was like me handing over the reins to someone like Matt Fell and saying, okay, Matt, I've written these songs. I've done these demos. There's two Ian Moss songs on here. There was one that didn't make the cut that was so close that I wished it would have turned into a duets record if I had done it, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. But the other one about the Nullarbor plane was when Ian came back after Dad had passed away, so he was ready to write again. And we sat here and I, I just chucked him on an electric guitar. I said, just, just be yourself and let's try and write something about that trip across the Nullarbor Plain, which they'd done many times that I'd read about in Don's mm. book. So you just played as a bit of um, electric guitar on the Truman. It's like yeah. a Stratocaster-shaped guitar. Yeah. Now, you, I think you kind of thank that guitar and, of course, the Martin, which was gifted to you by a, a family when you're on tour. Yeah. Where's the Truman come from? What's the story there? It's another gift. Right. And, and it, there's only two guitars mentioned in the thank yous. One of them is to Greg Truman from Adelaide. He just um, emailed me out of the blue. He said, I've watched you for years. I uh, used to watch you at this hotel in, uh, in South Australia. And he said, I'd love to just let you try one of my guitars that I make. Um, I'm just a backyard guy. But he said, I've got this black guitar that um, I really would love to see you have a go of. If you don't like it, send it back. 
And so I, I pulled this thing out of the box. The pickups that came with it are still up there. I took them out and I put these uh, rod slider pickups in. They're, they're incredible. So I chucked it together, plugged it in, and it was just incredible. And I rang him back and I said, man, look, I have to pay for this. He said, no, 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 no. He said, um, I really would like to you just to play it. If you love it, just keep it, you know. And so it became one of those things where songs started to fall out of it. Uh, Mossy fell in love with it when he came over. And when I was writing songs, it became one of the main voices on the record. All the stratty tones mm. that you hear on the record are from this thing. And it, it, I don't know what it was. I'd never played that stuff on a record before. But this thing just gave me a voice. And I, I said to him, I rang him after the record. Was, I kept sending him photos <laughs> of the guitar in action. And I said, Greg, it's, some good things have fallen out. And I know people go on about it. I've, I've seen Dave Gilmore talk about how songs fell out of his 12-string and all those things he sold. And the Martin was exactly the same. And this thing arrived like a complete basket case and suddenly all these songs started to fall out of these two main instruments. And I'm a Telecaster player for, by nature, but I adapted to this thing because it just had such a story. And Ian loved it because he just felt, he said, I can almost feel Adelaide in this guitar. How old is the guitar? Oh, it's only three years old, but it's had a hell of a life. Because I was going to say, looking at it, it looks 35 years <laughs> my, old. My auntie said, well, he did a lot of the relicking to it because he wanted to make ah. it look like Eric Clapton's guitar, Blackie. And I said, I said, geez, it's had a hard life already, Greg. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I wanted to make sure it felt like when you picked it up, it was lived in. Yes. And I've got other guitars that are pristine and don't have many scratches, but this thing felt like it was all, already from 1956. So as I strummed it, I said, look, I can probably change the pickups. I think I'm not used to what the pickups are that you've sent. I said, but I'll send you the other ones back, which I've never done. He's never asked for them. So they sit there like a bit of a monument. But it brought out things, Sean, in me as a guitar player. I've, yeah. I've, I've been an, an, a guitar nut since I was a kid when I started playing at 10. So it helped me. It was a vehicle. And hearing Mossy play it that day, I went, oh, my God, I wish it sounded like that when I played it. <laughs> but, um, but he just sounds like him. Yeah. And, and that was the... I think the real inspiration for going right. If I'm going to go there as a guitar player on this record and and show another side of something I've never done, this is the guitar to do it. Speaking of voices, um, your voice, the maturity and warmth on this record, the way you're singing, I think it's like the best I've ever heard you recorded before. Oh, thank you. I I don't know why I'm old. <laughs> I guess that's is probably it, is it like the guitar, the lived in thing. <laughs> yeah, it's lived in. It's, yeah, it's, um, yeah. it's lived in. I, and I took my mic down with me that um, I've had for ages as well, an old 67. And it's been like a bit of a good friend. So I got it serviced on the Monday and I was singing through it on the Friday. And Matt said, Can you bring your mic down that you've been doing all your demos on? He yeah. said, Because the vocal sound you've got at home is yeah. what I'd like to capture back down there. So last time I saw you in this room, you'd had all your demos and then. Next thing I saw on Instagram, you're off to Sydney to make the to make the record. Yeah. So you obviously made that decision during COVID. You were prepared to lock down when you came home. Yeah. So how did it work? It sounds like um, it sounds very alive for the record. Was it recorded in a small number of takes? Oh yeah, it's it's really alive. Um, we were going to record it out of Jimmy's studio, uh, where he's in Botany in Sydney. Yep. But it was a bigger space. And I, I said to Matt, I said, you know, and then COVID really locked everyone down and I couldn't get the engineer that I was going to use who comes with the studio because it's Jimmy's uh, son-in-law, Ben Rogers. And things 
changed by the minute, Sean. So uh, Laurel and I were like at each other because I was not touring <laughs> and, and I must have been a real pain in the ass to live with, I, I guess, and I'm pretty sure that's what, what the case was. And we were arguing over the most stupid things and I said, I've got 25 songs. I should go and make this record. If I have to isolate when I come home, I'm, gonna, I'm biting the bullet here because I'm not on tour. So, and she was happy to see me go, don't worry. <laughs> and so I just decided, I said to Matt, where are we going to record if we can't get Jim's studio? He said, look, we've got this great space where I work and I do my mixing. He said, it's very tiny and we'd have to do everything together as a band in two rooms and you'd have your amp in a third room. Are you cool with that? And I went, whatever. At that stage, mate, I did not care. Mm. I just wanted to get these songs down. I wanted him to produce this record. Yeah. So we're set up. I had a little corner in the control room with this guitar and the Martin and a telly, and I had uh, Matt playing bass at the mm. at the screen where the engineer was sitting next to him. I got a mate of mine who produced, uh, engineered two or three records for me, Ted Howard, and then we had uh, Chris Camzellis come in and play some electrics with me as well as a bit of a standby and a bit of a foil, and we just hit it. The drum room, I could see Josh Schuberth, um through the glass. And because I was drumming, I, I was always laughing about how bad the demos were when he heard them. And he was really encouraging. He'd look at me and he's going, this is great. You know, let's, 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 let's do this. Press red. So we'd try a verse and a chorus and then we'd hit it. So most of what we captured was like second take. Wow. And I was so thrilled with that because I get tired after playing things five goes. Yeah. It's just it loses the spontaneity. And then you recorded your vocals Towards the end or the, each the day? week after. Right, okay. Yeah, some of them I kept live because we were in a qu- pretty quiet room. We only had the bass DI'd mm-hmm. and it was reasonably quiet. So we had a cone around that microphone and if there were th- certain things we caught on the day, we just kept them. It's interesting too because we've spoken about the heavier stuff you've done. There's some lighter moments too with acoustics. Yeah. So and you obviously wanted to have light and shade through the album. Well, I wanted it to be me. Mm. And the only and I've always been a light and shade sort of person, not as heavy on the guitar end yeah. and the theme end as this ever before. But I think it's a side where you're you're comfortable. When I picked up this acoustic, every time I picked it up in the studio, Matt would say, "What acoustic's that?" Because he'd, he'd look over, he'd know that it was something special. But it was always this old thing. It's made in 1942, and it's dry and light, and it just has this. And the strings are as dead as a doornail, but it still has a, th- a thing. And I, I would pick it up and things would come out that, that have never been out of a guitar in my whole life. I've never owned a guitar that old. So I would uh, sit down for the light and shade. If it's going to be a ballad, I'd lead off on this thing. Yeah. And that was, that was the, the glue between the drums and the bass and the other guitar. Some of the days we didn't even have the, the second guitar. We just had the acoustic bass and drums and it just sounded really, really natural to do it that way. The most recent thing I've heard you do on record was the Macarada Project. Yeah. Which must have been amazing to be asked to read the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Oh, look, be part of that track. It was incredible and such an honour. And, and just to hear the other voices reading it out and I read it out in this very room, you know, and... And Peter just said, Pete Garrett, he said, I want you to read something out of that Macarada project line and then the statement from the heart that means something to you. And that'll be the part we put in. And I talked about incarcerations. I talked about things that I'd, I'd read it a hundred times because I loved what it stood for. Mm. But it meant so much more 
because, you know, you got Jim and Jeannie chugging away on an electric guitar and that was just incredible. And, and Jim also featured on a few of these tracks too. That's what I was going to get to, yeah. yeah. So is that how that relationship came about with Jim appearing on your record? In a way it did, but I knew Jim before that through Nash Chambers because ah. he'd done stuff on Casey's records. Right. And it was just an incredible sort of a, a, a deal where, you know, I got in touch with Jim. He, he said to me, look, oh, there's a song called Come On Down that I've written for the project. I'd love you to be a part of it too. So he and Peter just said, look, sing the whole thing down and let's see what we come up with, you know. So this Come On Down song came along and I listened to it in the cans and I went, oh, wow. And it's such a, a beautiful theme and that's what endeared me to the song. And I said to Jim, this fire concept has been something that has been going on for a long, long time between na- native tribes to be able to come together to talk mm. about making a treaty or sharing land or whatever. And I said, now it's a case of we invite people to our fire that are black or white to make sure we're all – it's a bit of a leveller. And the song rung through like that. And when Jim – uh, said, look, if there's anything you want me to do on your record, let me know. I said, well, just so happens we've got a couple of tunes. We need something quite ethereal. I don't do ethereal on guitar. I said, but I love what you do. So we spent a whole day in, in Brookvale with him just going through pedals and stuff on the floor and Jim just going out into this old piano thing. So it was just yeah. an incredible day. He's, he's remarkable, isn't he? Oh, and that, God, he's such a one-off. That rack of pedals he has. I, I remember seeing him play once in a rehearsal room. I thought, wow, this is like Brian Wilson or something, the sounds oh, yeah. he can get out of a pedal. It's genius. Know, melodically or whatever it might be, texturally. It's quite remarkable. Yeah. But I said the lines that you've got in Back on Country on your record, no matter what your bloodlines, we belong to this land. You might be black. You could be white, but come and join the choir. It's very inclusive, very oh, welcoming. Absolutely. And you know what? This song was inspired. I was fishing with a mate of mine up near Morton Island, and as we were passing Morton, he said, I've got a, a mate of mine's young son. It's his favourite surf spot right there. And I said, oh, right. I, I said, you know, where's he from? He said he's been holidaying there since he was like five-year-old. Yes. He loved the spot so much, he got the satellite coordinates tattooed on his chest. <laughs> of that surf spot. And I said, John, that's connection to country and he's a white kid. Yeah. I said, understand something. It's not just an Indigenous thing now. We've been here long enough to know to look after country, to not leave stuff when you're camped, uh, to get that feeling when you first open the door mm-hmm. and the air comes in of your favourite spot in that car. Mm-hmm. That's your country. Mm-hmm. And I said, I need to write something that gives people a chance to all feel like they've got their place. They've got their special moments where they stand with their family. They've stood as children where they take their kids now, next generation, and they need to feel like they belong. And I said, I reckon I need to write a song about it. And, and Back on Country starts out sounding like it's quite an Indigenous theme, but it's not. Mm. It's, it's for everyone now. And like I say, come to the fire. Sit down. When we made the clip the other day, I had a lot of my Indigenous family with me, but I had my best mate from school since I was 12, who's a white guy. And he loves that place as much as I did because we had our school camp there. Uh, we, we've been out there camping as young young yeah. blokes in our teens, and he's connected there just as much as me. Where, where do you feel about Change the Date? Hmm. I'm of the thinking that no matter what, it's a free country. People can celebrate whatever day they want. I personally don't feel like it's the thing for me. I don't feel like I want to celebrate someone like Captain Cook. Mm. I've made the effort to 
educate myself on the other side of politics as well to see what Captain Cook was all about. The Sam Neill uh, doco was incredible, and it gave me a really good idea as to what Captain Cook's motives and drives were, and, and I appreciate what he was doing like that. But as an Indigenous bloke, um, I just feel like, you know, it's not a date that I feel completely connected to, and I think they could find an inclusive date anywhere. Yes. And the fact that I don't, I'm not sure how long it's been celebrated, I think, was it back in the early 90s? Well, that well that's the, the thing. It's not something we've had from day one. It's, no. it's a relatively recent date. Very much so. So it's not like there's any massive emotional attachment to that date. Like I, I, I tend to not get caught up in the politics. I, I did for a couple of years, and I thought to myself, wow, that took a lot of energy from mm. me. And I think to myself, well, if we're living in a free country and people want to get drunk and celebrate uh, in Australia Day bikinis, go for it. You know, whatever turns you on, that's the sort of country we're in. We're not a political country like America. We, are, we don't um, just vote Labor because our family voted Labor, you know, or mm. Liberal or whatever. Mm. We are free to do our own thing. And if people feel like they want to make that their day, go for it. I'm not going to step on their fire. Yeah. But if they want to come to my fire and hear our side of the story, they're welcome. That's lovely. Yeah. The World Today is an interesting track because, I mean, you cover George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, social isolation. Yeah. You've got Jim Magini on there as well. Yeah. It's a pretty powerful track. Oh, look, and you want to you want to realise why it was the centre of the wagon wheel hub for me. It was the song that spoke to me when I first wrote it. It went through probably three incarnations. When George Floyd happened, it just did me. Mm. I just could not believe it was happening on my TV screen. Mm. And I think... Watching the, the, the young African-American fellows get ribbed for kneeling at footy games over there, I thought for a free country, it's really not free. Mm. If you don't have the freedom of speech that everyone talks about and they rave on about, yeah. then it's really out the window when you're getting, uh, you know, just basically torn down because of what you're thinking and feeling. So when I wrote the song, uh, I thought, well, I grew up as a single parent. I've seen my mother struggle too. Uh, I went through the George Floyd one where I think all, you know, all around the world we should be kneeling and praying for a better world for our kids. And then it came down to the last verse where I'd lost my dad and I'd lost my best, one of my best friends you know, uh, through suicide. And then my thoughts got dark but not that dark during that time. But then that was the way to sum this song up. And I had a lot of my friends who were in my band listen to the record on the way home on a stick in their car, have to pull over because they got kids and they get themselves composed and then they drive off and go home. And one of them said, oh, man, I, I started crying the other side of the gateway when I heard this song and I had to pull over and just get my shit together and go, hang on, I can't drive like this because I can't see. Oh, wow. I, I think that sort of effect, if it affects your friends and the musicians that are even in your band, then it's on the right path. There's some heavy stuff in there. I mean, things like uh, Drive in the Dark, uh, I still believe. Oh, you know? well, yeah, I know. And I didn't mean this to be a dark record. I meant this to be something that was more of a celebration of getting through yes. the, the darkest times that I've actually ever seen in my life. And I've got one of my first cousins that's written about, uh, he got out. There, he told me one night by the fire that when you get picked up by the police and, and have to go to jail when you've got enough things, charges against you and they're looking for you. He said, if they pick you up at one o'clock in the, in the morning, that's when you're let out. And I didn't realise that. Right. So when you're let out with your earthly possessions in your arms, yes, it might be your wallet and your keys yeah. to a house that maybe isn't even there. Um, he was let out in the rain and he knew that he could walk to his sister's place 
And the first thing he said was, look, uh, I, I headed for my sister's, hoping that she's home, because I don't want to spend my first night out alone. And that was, that was just, you know, part and parcel of his life at that minute. I wrote him uh, letters from the road when he was in jail yeah. and tried to keep his spirits up. But he said if there was one thing that it did, he's not religious at all, but I think he did believe in God for a minute in jail because he thought if there's anything that I can believe in, that's what's going to get me out alive, you know? You've got to have something to believe in. You've got to have something. Mm. He said, I, I didn't know where to turn. He said, I had a lot of people in jail who were just very bad and that wanted to hurt you and that wanted to kill you. He said, but if there's anything that's going to get you through, there has to be some sort of hope. And he said, and that's what it was. And that's why the chorus says, I still believe in God. I still believe in heaven. I still believe there's somewhere to be other than here. Yeah. And, and you know, hey, and then I played it for my auntie. And she thought about her brother who was incarcerated, my uncle. Yes. And she, she said, that's exactly what your uncle went through, not just Stephen and, you know, your cousin. So there's all these elements, I suppose, in the, these conversations and these, these things that have happened in our family's history that are worth talking about. It, like I say, it doesn't have to be about what you've done personally, but it's affected our whole family. Yeah. And that was the, the, the fuel that I needed to actually get these things written. Laurel discovered that song in a bunch of demos that I had on a hard drive. And she said, what's this song about um, I Still Believe? What is, what is, where is that from? And I said, oh, it's just a demo I did years ago about my cousin. I never recorded it. Maybe it's time. And she said, you're mad if you leave that off this record. So it's <laughs> funny to get your, your wife A&Ring things for you, but... It was an incredible moment where I thought, yeah, maybe it does have a home in this record, you know? Yeah. Isn't it funny how songs often find their own way through and arrive again or re-announce themselves when it's time? Absolutely. Mm. And surprisingly, they come out of the blue. Mm. And I think that that's, that's what this whole thing has been about for me is writing new things, going on a new journey. I mean, with, with Sony, the way that um, we've come back after all these years, it's been great to give them something that's probably – as wholesome as I can get and as real and close to the bone as a musician can actually go in this genre, really. In a, as a country artist, you know, there's no steel guitar on this record, there's no fiddle, but there's a lot of heart yeah. that, that comes through as a country artist and the stories to me are the ones that have to ring true. Well, talking about ringing true, it, one of my favourite lines on the record is um, from the song with Ian Moss, South... That's one bell you can't unring. <laughs> yeah. That is a great line. No, thank you. I I um I wrote that. I had the line I wanted to use it in two songs and I used it ages ago in another tune, but it needed to come back because it was I forget who I heard it from, but it was something like something you absolutely can't undo. And when I said to Ian, I said, I, I know that my cousin was working on bridges at the time. And he'd seen this cable swing and missed this guy by like this much. And he said, I still have dreams that if it had got him, it would have just cut him in half. And he said, I, I can't stop. I get anxious. And oh, it was on a, on a really big bridge. It was the one they were building near McLean. Man. Highest bridge I've ever been over. Even the other day, I felt like I was going to get blown off. And he said, yeah, I still, he said, I have these dreams. And I said, well, if it had got him, imagine the, the trauma you'd have in your mind yeah. of getting it out of your brain. So we, we decided we'd start writing about these two things. And, I, and, and I'd just 
been listening to Chisel's greatest hits when I before I had Ian over because I wanted to write something that he was going to be really comfortable in and give him something to get his teeth into. And I said to him, I said, this, this has got to be blue collar. This is We're going to get back to where we're from, you know, our, our relations. And he loved that approach. It wasn't like, let's sit down and work out what we're going to do today. I said, I've got this idea. It's called South. And I said, no, not about just the, 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 um, the direction. I said, it's about everything going South mm-hmm. in someone's life, in a couple of people's lives. And um, I said, so let's, let's roll with it. This is what I've got as an idea. And it was, I said to Ian, when, when we sat down, it was a case of, um, I said to him, and it started like that. It was started as a, just a basic vamp. And I said, Ian, what would you do over that? And, and he, as soon as I started playing that, that thing, he went, and he was just, we started just jamming before any lyrics were written. And that's a great place to start. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to be able to just start things that make us both feel comfortable as a co-write, mm. and then we'll see what falls out of the sky. And, and that for me was great to be able to sit with Ian and just to see his handwriting, you know, and him mentioning things in the song that we wanted to talk about. And what a remarkable singer he is. Oh, this is like one of my favourite all-time singers. Yeah. And, and to be able to do a duet, we, we actually recorded two duets. Yes. And um, the other one was called Nullable Plane. This one was, was the standout because it was the day my dad died. Yeah. And it was the one we'd written and finished before I walked up the stairs and got the news. It was something that I was just celebrating. You know, I, I'd loved Ian since I first supported him as a kid in a band when we were going through with Matchbook yes. in 88 or 89. And we were all astounded at the, the, the head road cases for his marshals still had cold chisel written on them. <laughs> and that was like we're all bowing down at those. And I was telling him the story, you know. And, and, and to, to write a song with a hero is something that doesn't happen every day. No, absolutely not. And is but what great. a singer. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Just a wonderful singer. I saw him sing maybe two years ago on the Jimmy Webb show. Mm. Did you see that show? mm and he came out and sang a few on his own, did a couple with Kate Sobrano. It's like, this guy is incredible. What a voice. I was in the States at the time, uh, and they'd asked me to be a part of that show. Uh, and Jimmy Barnes was really, really hammering me to say, can't you make it work? Yeah. I said, God, I wish I could, Jim. You know, I just, yeah. I just can't get there. Yeah. But, yeah, he, he's a next-level singer. He and, is. And when it came time to do his vocal with Matt, it was incredible because we had some of the, the kids from Sony over doing some of the filming, and – I don't know whether they'd actually heard Ian sing live, but it was just this momentous occasion where we all just went, fuck. <laughs> Listen to this guy. It's Ian Moss. It's Ian Moss. Yeah. And I don't know, it just blew my mind, you know. One last question about the record. Um, when I get to I Hear My River with Shane Howard, I love these lyrics. I feel your water on my skin. The spirit world will let me in. The other side now I can see. I hear my river calling me. That's, again, that's very powerful, heartfelt stuff. Oh, look, that, that, was, that was half and half with Shane and I. Uh, I I'd, I'd started the song uh, in Who Do You Think You Are when I was on the, on the road with them. And they had me at the, the headwaters of this river where my four or five generations down were fishermen, Indigenous fishermen. And uh, I was sitting on the headwaters of this river with an old distant relation of mine 
And when I got out of the car, I'd never been there before, but I felt like I'd been there. And as I got out, he came up and gave me a hug, this old, old black man. And he said, welcome to your country. And it just, just I was gobsmacked because I, I felt like I, I belonged. Yeah. I felt like I'd been there, but I hadn't, you know. So there's this ancient thing that I had in me that was just about to be unfolded here yeah. when I hugged that man. So we're sitting on the rocks at this river, right above the Shalehaven River, and I had my acoustic and I said, I started this song yesterday called I Hear My River Calling Me. I said, but I've never been to the river, but for some reason I feel like I have. And he said, well, you have, boy. He said, your people are from here. He said, that's what you have to realise. He said, you don't have to have been here with your feet on the ground to have been here. He said, the spirit people are talking to you here and letting you know you belong. So I told Shane Howard and played him the little clip that I'd made in the motel when I got back from visiting with this old man. And, and that's where the song started. And it was, it, this river ran down into the Clyde and that's where this old relation of mine used to fish for mullet. He knew by the bark on the trees. This old uncle of mine told me about the signs these fellas looked for to know when certain things were on. It was indigenous knowledge that helped him gather food for his family. He had like nine kids to feed and he asked the local police if he could get a loan of their boat so he could take the net out further. And the police said, yeah, take it, you know. This was in a time where Indigenous people were empowered yeah. to be industrious. And and it's it's in the story of uh, who do you think you are that this all unfolded. And when I told Shane Howard about the the meeting of this old man and the feeling I got, oh, Sean, it was like this burning wow. in my belly that it was so – it was quite confusing because I felt like I just got off the – out of the car and at my men's camp where I'm actually from. I said, where else do you feel like that? Never anywhere. Wow. But I felt it this day and I, I said to this old man, I said, I don't understand what I'm feeling right now. I said, I feel like I want to cry. And, and when I played him the top of the song, Why Do I Feel Like I Belong, um, he started to cry and then I got it. It wasn't just me. Yeah. And he's from there. Wow. So it was just this moment. And Shane Howard, I said to him, this is what I need to capture in this song. This old guy that used to fish the river, his mother was a full-blood Aboriginal woman who saw Cook's ship go past. My God. This is before settlement. That's incredible. And she, was, she died when she was 100 years old. So, you know, and, and that, was, that was common knowledge that this woman had seen the ship. They were all in awe of this That's ship. Astounding. They didn't know what's going on. My God. So when it said in the, in the lyric, I saw Cook's ship go sailing past and changes came. The change was fast. And, and when they buried this woman, she was 102 year old, but they never had a birth certificate. Yeah. And she didn't even have a name on the marriage certificate with the old Irishman she married. It was just Native Black. Jeez. That was her name. So this, it was the song on the end that had to sum up the record for me. And being able to do Who Do You Think You Are took me to my Maltese heritage in my, in my, in my father's homeland of Malta took me to his house where he grew up before he, he moved to Australia and it took me to the headwaters of this river with this distant relation of mine. And if I didn't write a song about that, there's something wrong. <laughs> That's right. As in the business you're in. <laughs> oh, and, you know, I know everyone else has been inspired by doing a bit of family history, but this thing was next level. Yeah, that's incredible. It was scary good. That's incredible. Then I actually thanked the crew. 
I said, if, if this was the, about the fourth day of shooting, I said, if any other day doesn't add up to that, I don't care. Yeah. But thank you for bringing me here. Because yeah. I've, I've driven past Bateman's Bay and always looked at the river as a young bloke on tour going, oh, wow, look at that place. I didn't even know I had relos there. Remarkable. You know, it might have been four generations away. Yeah. But it was just there. Yeah. So I thanked them, you know. I said, thank you so much. I, whatever happens from here is going to be a bonus. <laughs> Well, Troy, thank you. I mean, you've made a remarkable record. It's heartfelt. It's moving. There's so much story in there. As I said, your autobiography is in there. It's a very powerful piece of work. You should be very proud. Thanks for joining us. Congratulations. Thanks, Sean. A uh, big thanks to Troy Casadaly for joining us today on Time to Talk. Troy's new album, The World Today, is out everywhere on March 19. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. Um, I hope you can join us again back here very, very soon for another episode. Until then, stay well. Stay well.